This episode is brought to you with support from PerfectDailyGrind.com. Perfect Daily Grind, your source for coffee education, articles, videos, and more, from the farm to the cup. If you've listened to the podcast for long, you know that when talking about coffee in general, we tend to favor discussing topics surrounding specialty coffee. However, the series so far has been primarily about coffee price concerning the sea market and what it means for coffee globally. Now, we hone in on specialty coffee. Our guest on this topic is none other than Heather Perry, the president of the Specialty Coffee Association and vice president for Clatch Coffee. She's also a two-time U.S. Barista Champ and placed second in the World Barista Championships. Let's start with an introduction. From there, we'll begin to discuss the current coffee price and what it might mean for specialty coffee. Hi, Heather. Welcome to the Coffee Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You have a substantial amount of experience in the coffee industry. For example, you've been at Clatch Coffee, Inc. for almost 20 years, and you're currently in the role of president at the Specialty Coffee Association. Where did your coffee journey begin, and how did you get to where you are today? Oh, man, that's a big question. So for those of you who don't know, I, Clash Coffee is a family business. It's my family's business. And we have had it for almost 27 years now. So we've been doing this for quite a while. So I grew up doing this. We opened our first retail store when I was 10. Um, and that was kind of how we got started. So I would spend my days after school going to the cafe, sweeping and cleaning tables doing those types of things in the back, doing dishes whenever I could kind of, I thought it was so cool to play with the register and handle money. And that was kind of how it got started. And then as I continued to go, my parents would obviously start teaching me bar and pulling shots and things like that. And I remember my dad and I, weekends are really busy for us at our cafe and our weekend nights, we would have live entertainment and they would be really busy. So my dad and I would work together Fridays and Saturday nights. And so I remember us going and in, going into work at like three and we would work a eight, nine, 10 hour shift and we'd be driving home around midnight. We'd always get fast food super late and on the way home. Uh, and that was kind of how I got started in it. And as the business continued to grow, if you know anything about me or my family, we are just competitive. Uh, it's not necessarily our best quality, but it's definitely one that's there. <laughs> and so when we uh, had a barista competition, uh, it was the very first one was actually the North America barista competition is what it was called back then. And it was in 2002 in Anaheim. And I went and I competed and I did a s'mores mocha and I served it in a cowboy boot cup. And if you follow me on Facebook, this shows up on my Facebook feed like once, once a year at the same time. And there's like some good old characters from coffee in there. And I was toasting the marshmallows on top of the drink. And I told the judges who were European, it's Sonia from Iceland, who's still a judge today. Um, So she like remembers this. She uses me as her example to like people who are learning coffee. She's like, I judged Heather Perry in her first competition. And it was the worst thing I've ever put in my mouth. And look what she (laughs) became. So (laughs) I'm like her test case. Oh, that's great. You can can get better. There's hope for you. If there was hope for her, there's hope for you. Um, and so I think I finished not last, but darn near last that competition. Hmm. And, you know, that definitely was like a big reality check. And so we, it was, it was a great thing. I think it was a big turning point for just us at Clash to be like, okay, so what are other people doing with coffee? Why did we do that? How do we get better at this? And I think that was our journey towards taking our coffee game here at Clash to the next level. 
Um, mm. You know, people, a big question we ask is like, gosh, why is your company so into competition? And it's because I, I think it helps you to stay relevant, not trendy, but relevant, if that makes sense. Um, I also think it definitely helps to make sure within everybody's own world, I think you can think you're great. And that's the nice thing. I also think about competing in tons of different competitions from golden bean to a, a latte art throwdown to a USBC is they all encompass such different qualities in, as to what coffee can be. And I just think they help you kind of put your best out there, see how you're doing, see where you can be improving, get some genuine like third party feedback um, and I, I think that's kind of what helps to push people to the next level. So we obviously at Clatch, we have expanded our retail. We started with that one store and we are now up to seven stores. And mm. after uh, I did terrible in that Anaheim, North America barista competition, I com- continued to compete and I ended up doing very well in the competition circuit. And through that, got really involved with the SCAA and joined the Barista Guild and went on to be chair of the Barista Guild and launch our certification. And after being chair of the Barista Guild, I moved on to the SCA board, where I think I was have been there for the last decade, I think. Hmm. And I don't think that's and I think it's ever a plan to be on a, a, a board for 10 years. But when the <laughs> boards merged, um, you know, in the American and the European Heritage boards merged that ex- that extended how long I, I stayed for. Got and it. so mm-hmm. that's just been an amazing growth opportunity as well. And so, yeah, so that's why I've kind of been on the board so long, being able to see the board through the merger and then kind of being that next in line. And yeah, it's just, it's been a fun journey. Sounds like a fun journey and sounds like, you know, you, you've learned probably a ton of things, not just about coffee, but the way uh, the culture is and the way that it has been changing. Um, you've, been in a great position to sort of observe those things and also be a part of those things happening in coffee. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. There's, there's so much that's changed in coffee in the past 20 years. You know what I mean? From how people consume it to when they consume it to what they consume. You know, I, I mean, it's, it's definitely been interesting. The nice thing about being able to travel so much as well and, comp- and be in so many different circuits is to see how different it is all over the world and also how much more aligned it's becoming, how similar it's becoming as well. It's funny because as much as we talk about how coffee is so diverse, it's also kind of the same thing that brings people together. No, absolutely. And yeah, you're touching uh, on the changing nature of consumption, which I think is, you know, a key part of the conversation uh, in the series that this is a part of, which is the uh, coffee price crisis and the economic sustainability of coffee. Um, But we'll get to that in a second. With regard to our conversation today... You have this unique position, considering your circles of influence and where your influence may terminate. How important do you think the conversation is surrounding coffee's economic sustainability and why? So I think a lot of people, when particularly in, actually in any circle, I, I think people don't understand exactly what we're dealing with when it comes to coffee price crisis mm. um, and, and what it means for us. Um, I think, so, you know, I hear some people say coffee's not going to be around in the next 20 years if, if we don't get a handle on this. And that's not actually, that's not actually the case. That's not where we are with coffee. Uh, if you look at coffee, it's a commodity. So it's, it's traded on the C market. So when prices are low, it means that you actually, if you know anything about commodities markets, it's supply and demand, right? So if prices are low, it means you actually have an oversupply of that product typically. And that's where we are with coffee. But how can we talk about it being unsustainable if we have an oversupply of it? And the reason is, is because you have countries like Brazil and Vietnam that have these incredible efficiencies at coffee. So coffee will be here, 
What might not be here is specialty coffee. And that's the, that's the conversation. And that's why it's so important for us as a specialty coffee association is you're going to keep your 70 to 80 point coffees, but you're going to lose your 80 to 94 point coffees. You're going to lose having just a good cup of coffee in the morning and everything will just put him like, eh, it's coffee. And that's, what's going to become the norm. And that's why it's such an important piece of the conversation. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And uh, I guess in with that, do you think the price of coffee today is a problem for the entire industry or do you think it specifically focuses on specialty coffee as you sort of hinted at there? I, I definitely think it's more of a specialty coffee issue. So if you look at the C price, I don't know what it is today, but it's been in the 90s for a while now. You know, it's kind of where it's been floating. I don't think we've dropped below 90. So I'm going to assume today we're still in the mid-90s on it. Um, Brazil has come out with a report that in order for farmers, the cost of production to produce coffee in Brazil for the majority of farmers with these high efficiencies is somewhere in the 80 cent range. Uh, so Brazil farmers can still make sense in, in the 90s. And the other thing that's at play here is currency exchange. So the currency in Brazil, where it's positioned right now, the price of coffee actually works perfectly fine for them. So it's not a coffee issue. It is a specialty coffee issue. And I do think that that's what, what we're looking at here. If you look at, you know, I, I think Costa Rica is a good example of where we've seen coffee um, exports be dramatically reduced in Costa Rica over the last decade. And you're going to see that to continue throughout the rest of Central America. And that also becomes a human crisis as well, because you have a large workforce that will have no, nothing to do. And so you're going to have migrants kind of moving on to different areas. And that becomes a large human crisis as well when you talk about coffee price. So it's not just the farmers um, and what they're getting for the coffee, but it's also the pickers and the rest of the workforce that it affects also. I do think that the coffee price crisis is more of a specialty coffee issue than a coffee issue. Um, but at the same time, and it, you know, because if you look at it as a coffee issue, at a certain point, the commodity market will take care of that, Right. I mean, if you have, as soon as demand, as soon as demand starts to exceed supply, you will, you, you will see the price naturally go up. But will that happen when it's too late for specialty coffee, right? So will it happen when it's too late and you've already had your exports depleted through, you know, through El Salvador, through Guatemala, through Panama? I see. So if we were going to talk about this problem in relationship to, well, obviously we have to in relationship to the uh, commodity uh, sort of price of coffee. I think some people could take the route of saying, well, specialty coffee might be not as impacted because you have things like contracts and things outside of the sea market that are in play. Um, that's, so that's half true. Uh, if you talk to any farmer, any producer of coffee, specialty or otherwise, they will tell you, and let's focus on specialty here for a minute. Mm -hmm. Every single specialty farmer, specialty coffee farmer produces non-specialty coffee. It is the nature of the business, if that makes sense. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It is the nature right. of if you have a farm, then it goes up the mountain. I think we all know in coffee, just base knowledge for a sec here, the higher the altitude, typically the better the cut price, right? Just in very general here, statements I'm making here. But they all produce on the entire mountain. So like many people, when you deal with niche, right, you have kind of not everybody in this, this ties into the 1029, just for a quick sec here. So not every cup of coffee that Wilford and the Alita estate sell, are they going to sell at $1,000 a pound? They still have coffees that they sell at the C price that helps to just sustain the rest of the workforce, the rest of the industry, the farm as well. It all contributes. So that's mm -hmm. where you get into trouble is specialty coffee because and you also look at, um, you know, if you, you're only growing so much. And so when we talk about specialty coffee in particular, 
even though they're not necessarily affected, if you look at some of those farmers that we're talking about, even though they have those contracts and so on, if you look at your specialty coffee importers, most of them still play based off of the C quite often. You know, most of them are still, most of them still buy plus the C. So it's C plus 50, C plus 90, whatever it may be. A lot of importers, even for specialties, still do purchase that way. Not all of them, but many of them do. Mm -hmm. So if the C is low, that's still going to affect them. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who are suggesting um, the idea of breaking off the C. I guess in my most simple form of the question, do you even think that's possible? No, I, I think I think it just I think it oversimplifies the problem, to be mm. honest. Okay. You know what I mean? Based partially on what I was talking about with the fact that your producers still have or are still producing commodity level coffee, right? Every producer still does that. Um, most producers are not specialty enough. And obviously there are going to be exceptions to this rule, but the majority of producers do not could not make their living just selling nothing but specialty. They need those commodity coffees because that's where volume comes from for all of them as well. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, there's exceptions, but for the majority of farm, for the majority of producers, they still are selling that sea coffee that still contributes to their bottom line, that still helps them continue to be in business year after year. Oh man, I, I want to go down that that path much further, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull us back um, so that we can we can keep on um, sort of the the agenda that we have here. Uh, why should retailers be concerned? with low coffee prices, uh, for example, like Clatch Coffee Inc., why should Clatch care about low prices? So this goes back to what I was saying with the fact that because of the fact that if coffee prices are low and the farmers who I buy from have to sell coffee at that price in order to continue on their business, if that margin becomes so low that even the specialty stuff that I'm buying can't help them, it, it can't cover the discounted price of having to sell the C prices, they're just going to stop producing coffee. And as they stop producing coffee, because it's just the economics no longer work, all of your coffee will be produced by Brazil and Vietnam. And I at Clatch will no longer have a competitive advantage in a market of coffee because we will all be selling the same 80 point Brazils. So the whole idea of, yeah, just sort of in a dry businessy environment of, of thinking, um, not dry, that that's got a negative connotation. I don't mean to have that with that the way I said that. But if I don't have options, I don't have competition and pricing. So naturally for the retailer, prices on coffee that may not be as quality will go up. Is that sort of the idea? Well, yeah. And you're just going to lose those middle of the road coffees. So like, I feel like right now, if you, if you go to a, I'm going to use a name here, go to Duncan, okay. Or whatever <laughs> your kind of chain, Mick Cafe, Duncan, let's say any of those, right? You go there, you get you, you you get your coffee, and it's coffee. It's fine, right? Is it delicious? No. Or do you pick it up and you say, "Man, that's good coffee." No, but it's coffee, and it's acceptable, and you can consume it. You go to Clatch, you get a you get whatever our brew bar special is of the day, you know, a Colombian El Salvador or something like that. You pick, you drink, it, and you're like, "Man, that's a really nice cup." It's not a ninety point coffee. It's not like, "Oh my god, I love the toffee notes and the orange." It's not that, but it's like, "Man, that's a really good cup." I will lose that advantage of man, that's a really good cup because all we're all going to have to sell is, hmm, they've got coffee and that becomes the issue. Or if you do want an amazing cup, we're going to lose all of those coffees that, you know, we're currently in the specialty market selling for that four, five, six. And if you want that great cup of coffee, it now jumps all the way up to $20. I see. Yeah. And so what you were talking about there, so now 
for the farmers that are continuing to stick with the game, stuff that you were potentially buying at $86, you know, 86 point coffee previously, instead of purchasing that for $350 a pound, you're now having to purchase that as a roaster for $8 a pound in order to make up for the margins that the producer is having to hit on the other end. And I think the problem with that becomes is what's the threshold for buyers, for your consumers who are walking into your store every day? You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. you can look at a Dunkin' cup and a Clatch cup. You know, you can look at that and say, "Oh yeah, I'm willing to pay double for my Clatch coffee." You know, it's a dollar seventy-five at Dunkin's. It's three fifty at Clatch. I, I can make that decision. I taste the difference there. It's worth it. But is it worth it for twenty dollars a cup for that same Colombian or El Salvador? Mm. You know, or or a producer's going to say no, nah, or, or not producers or consumers to say no, it's not worth it. I'm just going to go over here and get that. You know, I can't afford that. Yeah. There will be. I think we will find a threshold that consumers are willing to pay for coffee. Yeah, I don't know I, what it is yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, history proves that the consumer is very um, sensitive to price increase. Um, if you look right. back to, we'll have an episode on this, but if you look back to uh, some of the earlier crises that, that coffee's had as an industry worldwide, consumers, especially in the U.S., had a very negative response to some of the tactics that were used to try to, um, you know, keep coffee afloat, essentially. So... It's an interesting thing um, to to be discussing, um, especially coffee prices, you know, going up and people buying less of it because they just aren't willing or they can't afford it. I mean, specialty coffee is not cheap for the consumer either. No, not at all. And, you know, I think something, something that's really important to our core value at Clash and that we talk about is that we're able to provide value for our customers. Um, and that's something that is important in our buying of green coffee. That's important in our distribution of our retail to our customers. That's important as options to wholesale customers as well. You know, I don't think every customer can come in and pay six dollars for their cup of coffee, and I don't think they should have to to get a good cup of coffee. So here at Clutch, we are looking for good value coffees that we can buy from producers that are win-win. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think if you abandon that and, and you, you know you're only buying green coffees that you're paying six, seven, eight dollars a pound for it's going to be really hard to be a sustainable business for yourself. And it's going to be hard to then support a specialty market because how many cups can you sell if that's all you're selling? Right. So how many producers are you actually able to support if that's all you're really purchasing? Yeah, I see your point. I certainly do. My next question is along the same lines, you know, Clatch has this hundred dollar cup of coffee, right? Um, It's pretty amazing. Pretty astonishing. How do hundred dollar cups of coffee fit into this dilemma of the price of coffee? So I think they do two things. One, um, you know, I just talked about it's important to that we provide value for our customers. There's also value in the best coffee in the world and only having to pay $100 for it, right? Like you're not going to get the best wine in the world for $100. You're not even going to get a top 100 cup of wine for $100, right? Or a glass of wine for $100. Mm-hmm. But you can literally have the best cup of coffee in the world. I think we can all agree one of the five best cups of coffee in the world for $100. So for somebody who's a coffee lover or who loves just the best of the best and wants to indulge in things like that, this is a really great opportunity to taste something exceptional. Um, and that's for, you know, we have two core values. We've got that value piece, but we also do have as part of our values to provide the best coffee in the world. That's something we want to be able to do to our customers. And that happens in a lot of different ways. But for us, we enjoy, you know, I, I always say when Mike 
or roaster and green buyer, when he's at Origin, he's like a kid at a candy store. So like, if you ever look at Clatch's offering, we'll have six El Salvador's and we'll have four Panama's and you know, we'll have five Kenya's that we're offering at one time. And it's because when he's over there and he's cupping on the table, if he likes it, he buys it. And that's one of the fun things about us is, you know, you never know what you're going to get. And there's lots of different choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's really how this Panama kind of fits into what we do. It's not going to be for everybody, but for some people, it's a great opportunity to try something different, to try something unique. Uh, and you know, Wilfred's somebody that we've been buying from for a, over a decade now. Uh, you know, my parents were at his wedding earlier this year, and Wilfred Junior's wedding, and so it's just great to continue to support the hard work that they've been doing as well, and be able to showcase that to our customers, and then be able to have that conversation. Because, you know, I, the reality is, is I don't think a $6 cup opens up as to, well, wow, what, what makes this cup different than my Dunkin' cup for $1.50? I don't, I don't know that that does. But at $100, you're now creating a conversation like, wow, why is this coffee so expensive? So part of what we also hear at Clatch is we're big on that conversation piece. And a lot of times something as simple as having that $100 cup just creates brand new conversations for consumers. We spend some time in the retail um, sort of area of, of discussion here. I'd like to move... Um, a little more specific in retail to the barista's perspective. The barista world is one of high regard on the podcast, and you're, in a sense, a decorated veteran barista, and I believe that gives you a unique perspective to share here today. Why should baristas care about the economic sustainability of coffee? You know, I think it ties into a lot of what we've already been talking about. If for instance, we are all selling mediocre coffee. You know, I, I think it changes the price point that you can sell coffee at to consumers. And so I think that affects baristas' pay. I think that's a big part of it. I think baristas who are working at specialty shops are getting, you know, paid more than somebody who's working somewhere else. And so they lose potentially that advantage of it. Um, and I think that's an important conversation. Uh, the other thing that I would, I, I would flip it on, though, and say where this can be a little bit of an advantage to the baristas is, you know, if you look at Brewers Cup competitions, if you look at barista competitions, what what separates the winners in your in your mind? What what how, what do you have to have to win either of those competitions? I'm the best coffee is what I would think. Hundred percent, yeah, <laughs> and you're right. You have to have the best coffee to have that. So if we're all working with the same coffee, this potentially gives up baristas now a real opportunity to kind of separate themselves and what they can do with the coffee, right? So you've got some opportunities there, I think, for baristas to start doing new spins on coffee. Um, And I think something that we talk about a lot, we have uh, about 100 people who work for us right now in the retail environment. And, you know, it's obviously a slightly younger age group and a big conversation topic that, you know, they they are all looking at how they can better take care of their planet. And that's a big conversation amongst our staff right now. And so something we've kind of been turning it around on them and conversations that we're having with them is like, okay, well, tell me how a latte throwdown helps to contribute to the health of the planet. You know what I mean? Tell me how you taking 20 minutes dialing in and wasting all of that coffee is good for the planet. Tell me how. So we've kind of been able to flip the conversation with them and have some really fun interactions. And it's made them all much more aware of the impact that they have on, on coffee, on the planet and all of those bigger conversations. And so I do think baristas have to care about the price of coffee because it's, it's what they do, right? So mm-hmm. if you no longer have specialty coffee, as specialty coffee shops begin, you know, potentially cannot compete and go away, their jobs go away, potentially, correct? Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing that it does is it does give opportunities for baristas to really start to separate themselves with what they are able to do. So if, for instance, 
I am a um, roaster or I'm a cafe and I'm looking to bring on a barista, if coffee prices, let's say for specialty, continue to go up, okay, what am I going to look for when I hire a barista? I'm going to look for somebody who, one, can work with less waste, can work with less dialing in, can be intuitive, you know, can be really careful and methodical about how they work. Um, and that becomes a really big setup for me. I look for people who can um, produce coffee in more interesting and different ways for my consumer, not just the same way. Because if we're all kind of working with, you know, if we're working with a, a high-end product that has to be able to translate to consumers if you're going to be charging more, so having that skill set that balances that out, I think, is an important piece for baristas. So I do think what coffee prices do for baristas are a few things. One, they give them opportunities to potentially shine in new ways. And two, I think the other really interesting piece about it is in, in different ways of just with what they produce, with how they manage their waste, all of those types of areas. But I also think it gives them opportunities to show what they can do with coffees of different levels. Um, you know, I don't think that everybody is going to be looking for, and, and I mean, we know this from our own personal cafes, not everybody is looking for six, seven, eight, nine, ten dollar coffees. I think we're already on the specialty side of things. And I'm sure you've seen this as well. We're seeing prices go up, right? I don't know if you would agree with that, but I, I continue to see kind of specialty prices go up. And we talked about that threshold that we're hitting. So mm -hmm. as we begin to hit that threshold for consumers, I think it's a big time in the hands of the baristas to determine where consumers go with that. You know what I mean? And creating the value. The coffee is one piece of it, but how does the barista create that value for that product? That's where it becomes really important to them. Yeah, I, I think uh, the baristas are they're a critical point of pushing uh, the quality of coffee in general forward, but specialty coffee, um, especially, you know, forward because they are the face of specialty coffee to the consumer most times. So a lot of times when I walk into a cafe and I see a producer that I'm familiar with on a menu and I get the coffee, you know, most of the time, if I don't like the coffee, it's not because of the green coffee that's there. Right. right. Um, I think we, a lot of times take for granted how hard it is to sometimes it, it, I, I, making coffee is one of those things that I think is really interesting, really interesting because it's really easy and it's really difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a simple process to do in theory, you just got to execute it. And I find that that execution piece, we sometimes overcomplicate to the point of making it bad. I can't help but think that a, a lot of what you've, a lot of the way you've responded to this question sounds like it comes out of the I ideology that you have probably um, linking back to your experience uh, with training, not just at Clatch, but your experience uh, with the SCA and, and, you know, the fact that you're an authorized SCA trainer um, sounds like you're really emphasizing the idea of um, a professional level of training for baristas that can contribute um, to um, complement the this, the quality or the price of the coffee that is being served. Is that correct? Oh, 100%. Yes. Do you think that that kind of training in that organized fashion is going to be key for the future of specialty coffee um, with regard to the the crisis that we're in today? You know, something we haven't even discussed here, and this ties into it though, is labor prices in the U.S. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I can't speak for all of the rest of the world. I know Australia has really high wages as well. And, um, and you know, things are, the, the whole economics in Australia are slightly different, but labor pricing in the U.S. is, is another thing that we are seeing become a bigger factor. I think when you talk about the professionalism of the barista, it becomes an interesting thing because 
So for myself, I, I do a ton of training. I know what it, I feel like I have a really good grasp on what it takes to get a barista and the training that's required to get a barista to a competent point where they have like a good level of understanding of coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not easy. So there's a few different ways you can combat it. You know, you can combat it through making your coffee really, making your coffee program really basic. Like here's our in, here's our out, here's our time, stay there with it. And I think that if you follow recipes like that, you can get good coffee out of your machine. Could you get, could you make it better if you allowed more nuance? Yes. But could you also make it much worse if you go outside of that? Yes. So I completely <laughs> understand that point. Right. Me too. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Going along with that, I think, and it's interesting because I'm, I'm get, we're seeing some interesting feedback on this. I, I think technology is going to become such a big factor for coffee in the next five years. Just because of the way that labor prices are working, you know, I think super automatics have come such a long way in producing better coffee. And so I think that that's going to continue to be something that we see become a bigger part of specialty coffee. Uh, mm-hmm. We, I was talking to somebody else who in their cafes were experimenting with the puck press. I don't know if you've seen it at all. Yeah. Okay. So the puck press is something... I'm a huge believer that like, I don't think breezes go to work and they're just like, I can't wait to tamp 200 times today. That's going to be so much fun. <laughs> and yet when you introduce something like the puck press, they're like, why aren't you letting me tamp anymore? It's like, cause it's not even what, like, what does tamping have to do with anything? Like mm-hmm. you're, you know, we're getting into coffee because we love creating beverages. We love talking to consumers. Like tamping is just not where if I don't have to make that my focus, all the better, frankly. Right. It's, but uh, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, oh, I was going to say it's, a, it's an issue of control. Reason. Yeah, yeah, that desire for control of quality. Yes, exactly. It's an mm-hmm. issue. Exactly. But at the same time, it's like, I, it's for me, that is something where it's like the consumer will never understand the value of getting that tamp right. They will never understand why you cannot, you know, look at them in the eye while you're doing that if that's something you're doing or, you know, why that <laughs> level is so important. Right. Well, let the puck press do it and let's move on, guys. You know what I mean? Like, let's keep a smile on our face. Let's have a better conversation with consumers. Let's have, let's make more creative drinks. You know, I, I just, I think that we are going to have to see a fundamental shift in how we're making coffee in, here in the U.S. And, and what that role of the barista is and the professionalism of it will not go down. It will go up, but in a different way, I think. Mm. Um, in, in the same way that I think if you look at craft bars, like look at specialty craft bars. What do you see a ton of now? Batch cocktails. Yeah. I think that's where we're getting to with coffee, where you have these great things where it's like, hey, I can make you something really quality and I can make it quickly, or I can make you something really specialized. Um, and, and that's where I think we're going to go to with coffee. We'll continue this conversation in the next episode. But for now... I want to take a second and say a special thank you to some of our listeners who reached out via email and shared their thoughts. I'm looking into injecting some of these thoughts on the show in future episodes, but I haven't decided on the structure quite yet. If you have thoughts to share, I'd love to hear from you on Instagram or at our email at hello at the Tell us what you make of the perspectives shared so far, or even share your own perspectives. You might even have your thoughts shared on the show in a future episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, I encourage you to share it with the world with a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Reading your reviews can really encourage my work, but it's also a great way for me to hear what else you hope for the future of the podcast. I want to take a second and thank our listeners in Ukraine. Thanks for listening. 
Music is by Michael Parallax. I'm Jesse Hartman. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing.